Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up in Manitoba, where he played club and was on the provincial team before joining us at Team Canada on the U21 team. He went to the University of Manitoba before transferring, and he's currently playing for the Windsor Lancers. Please welcome to the show, Darian Kosky. Darian, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on here. So I think volleyball fans uh, will recognize that you're you're on a varsity team in Windsor with your brother, and your dad is Scott, and anyone who's ever watched Team Canada play knows that he was a setter. He's a Hall of Famer in Manitoba. I got I to gotta know, are you guys a volleyball house through and through, or are you playing a lot of other sports growing up? Yeah, I liked, uh, I liked to try a little bit of everything when I was younger. Uh, I'd say, like most Canadians, hockey was my primary sport for a little bit. Like, you know, naturally, volleyball is a bit of a late developing sport like you don't see many or at least back then you didn't see many like eight-year-olds who were really competitive at uh at volleyball but for hockey you know everybody starts young so i played hockey until i was about 13 and then i kind of kind of flamed out with it a bit I, I was never really that good but i kind of started to lose interest and i started to take volleyball more seriously then so i would have i would have played like all the sports growing up when i was younger like soccer baseball hockey basketball, volleyball, but by the time I was about in grade eight, I started to make volleyball my main focus and take it seriously. And were you guys like a pepper in the backyard type family? Like was volleyball always kind of around before you even started playing it at a team sport level? Yeah, it was, uh, we definitely, I'd been around it for my whole life watching my dad play when I was younger. Um, but something that I really appreciate is like, he, he wasn't like, uh, he didn't really force it upon us or, you know, like since I'm playing volleyball, like we we have to play volleyball too. Is he let us kind of discover it at our own pace, and I think that's a really good thing because it kind of lets you fall in love with the game on your own, and you find a really good appreciation for it. It might be hard to remember, but did it click in for you and your brother how special it was that your dad was like the captain of the national team? Because I think you would have been four, five, six range watching him play at the top level. Was it just like, oh, this is what my dad does, or did it sink in like how cool and special that was? Yeah, I didn't really, didn't really play again. I don't know. He's he's a pretty humble guy too. So he, like, we didn't really. I didn't realize like it was a special thing. Really, I was like, oh, I guess he plays volleyball professionally, and like you know, I kind of had an understanding that he was a pro athlete. But I was kind of like, oh, like it'd be a lot cooler if he was like a pro football player, pro basketball player. When I was little, I never told him that. But then I realized now, like as I started to really get involved in volleyball, and find an appreciation for the game, how. Uh, how fortunate I am to have somebody connect me to the community and who's able to really show me the ropes and provide knowledge that like you won't get in many other places. Now, uh, has he ever coached you formally? Obviously, I imagine there was a lot of conversations at the dinner table or in the car, but uh, was he ever your team coach? Yes. Yeah, so officially, he would have coached me uh, one season with Team Tobo, which was really cool. And uh, when I was just getting started in elementary school, uh, he was like the parent volunteer head coach for our grade seven and grade eight team. So kind of at the start of my volleyball career and then a little bit towards the end before my post-secondary career, he uh, coached officially. I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering, and heck, I'm even wondering, when you were, were growing up and starting to really like uh, value the sport and kind of take it to the next level, was there ever any question of, of how you got into the middle? Like, I think it's fascinating that a national team setter's son is a middle because usually, at least in Ontario here, the coaches' children are usually like setters or other positions uh, where I don't have too many coaches' kids that are, are middles, especially national team alumni. Yes, yeah, I think about that sometimes too. It's a little, 
little strange. I mean, when I first started playing a little bit of club uh, for Rob Wolford, my coach there, I was like taller than most of the other guys. It was with a bunch of hockey guys, so I was a bit taller than most of them. So I got stuck in the middle there with the other the other tall goalie guy, and we kind of figured things out a bit. And then I played uh, I played for two hundred four in my fifteen U season, and then I played on the left side a little bit. And uh, I didn't. I played junior varsity on the left side. Didn't see a lot of success, and then I made the change back to the middle again for club that year. And it was I was playing pretty well, so I think it might have just been pretty abilities based. I wasn't like growing up until about grade ten, grade eleven. Like I was super coordinated. I was kind of tall and lanky, so. I was able to find a bit more success in the middle than with all the packs and everything involved in the said. Were there any conversations with Scott about, because uh, every time we have a setter on the show, we go down the rabbit hole of like how much the setter is playing against the opposing middle blocker and like these cat and mouse games. So do you feel like you have an understanding of how middles can like disrupt that? Because you've kind of seen both sides where uh, you come from a family that has a great setter in it, but you're a dominant middle. Like, did you kind of figure out some hacks or little things that setters are looking for? Yeah, it's definitely something I'm still working on in my game uh, now. It's like you never really stop learning, I don't think, especially in the middle. There's always new little tips and tricks and fine-tuning certain skills, but it definitely helps to have kind of insight on the other side. Right? Like if, there was, if there was any other position that I'd want to kind of give me pointers besides another middle, it would be a setter because I'm working with the setter on the offense and I'm working against the setter on defense. Uh, so a big part of being a middle is trying to get into the setter's head. Like, what are they going to set next? What do they like to set? So it's definitely given me some important insight. And with your club career, uh, what's kind of the, the feeling around uh, Manitoba as a whole, but also Winnipeg in terms of club? Because uh, I think in, in recent years, it becomes appealing for a lot of the, the guys within driving distance to kind of go to one club. I'm wondering, did you feel the pressure to switch clubs in Winnipeg or kind of stack it with the other good players that maybe you were meeting a provincial team? Or were you more of a rivalry guy that it was me and my friends versus my other buddies on the other team? Like, how did you kind of develop between like 16U, 17U, 18U in terms of like where you were going to play and who are you playing against? against or with yeah the thing that makes like the club scene in manitoba kind of unique is that winnipeg's the big city and then like you have brandon but other than that there's really nothing there's not many large cities uh and like everything that's around there like steinbach and selkirk is about 30 minute drive to winnipeg right so it's, it's a very short drive for lots of these kids to make to get to these other clubs and the reality is that um, like the big best clubs will be in the city so you'll see lots of players come into the city to make the drive it's pretty normal even as the kids get older from Brandon they'll drive into Winnipeg right so like for a tool for we manage everyone's best I think my club situation was really unique because just kind of how it developed like when we started it it was junior Westman because uh Rob was, he was a Westman alum, and we had some other guys that used to play for the uh, University of Winnipeg. Some younger guys are kind of getting their foot in the door uh, for coaching and club in that. So they joined on as assistants. And it was just kind of really just a couple of my close buddies from, from my high school and from volleyball that I knew. And we, we started as like the underdog um, against Winman was big for my age. Two or four was good too, but Winman was kind of like the team to beat for most of those years. And uh, 
and then we kind of climbed up a bit and we got a couple guys from, you know, some guys from the other clubs came in and joined us as we started to see success. And then by the time we were 18, it was like what you just kind of referenced there. We were, yeah, we're almost like, I guess, the team to beat kind of out of Manitoba. There was, we were the top team that went forward. We kind of grabbed guys from other clubs and uh, we didn't see as much success as we would have liked to at Nationals. We lost a couple of key games to up there. Reach and then to Kelowna, but it was uh, it's kind of interesting in Manitoba because there's not there's not that many big cities, right? So it's not so much where you'll see players making huge sacrifices and driving a long time, you know, to play on Storm or Pacman. It's just kind of thirty minutes, and that's mostly the only option you have because the smaller smaller towns and smaller cities will stop putting out their own club team as you get to like 17 and 18 because there's just not that many boys interested by that anymore. Right, right. So as you're nearing the end of your club career, at what point did you start looking at post-secondary schools, whether it was, like you said, your club coach was a Winnipeg alumni. Was that kind of an in to kind of get a view of that program? Uh, were you looking at Manitoba? Were you looking at Brandon? Were you looking at leaving the province? Like at what point did post-secondary become a serious option? And then what was your kind of pathway to do visits and meet coaches and decide where you wanted to go? Yeah, so it would have been about, so 17U would have been when it started, like 17U Nationals is kind of, that's fairly common for when coaches will start talking to players, there are also big nationals for them to get recruits, because by the time the recruits rolls around, most of the top guys are signed. Um, so the first guy I had, Larry reached out to me from the University of Winnipeg, because like I mentioned, it was kind of a UW-associated club, and then Garth too, the guys at home, and uh had some other offers from out west also. Um, my thought process was mostly like I wasn't sure if I really wanted to leave home yet. Uh, I've always been, I've always placed like a lot of emphasis and importance on being close to family and uh, I really wanted to stay close to them so that was a huge deciding factor in Manitoba and just also that I, uh, my dad played there too and I knew that Noah would be coming up in a couple of years too, so there might have been some potential there to have everybody everybody in the family still at home. And I thought that would be really cool. So that was my main deciding factor. Nice. And uh, how did Garth approach the recruiting class uh, your year and maybe the year after even uh, Noah's? Because um, I think he kind of penciled in that he was going to retire at a certain point, but I'm wondering... Was that something you were aware of that uh, he wouldn't be your coach for your whole career? Like, uh, I'm just wondering uh, how how like um, tight was the deadline for him? I know COVID kind of interrupted, and you guys were hosting nationals in his true last year. But uh, did you know that he was kind of on the way out eventually? Yeah, he had uh, he had made it clear that like that was my first year. It's going to be his final season, and it was kind of nationals to end his uh, to end his career, which would have been great, unfortunately. Kind of ran another parade there with COVID, but uh, still had some good ceremonies and stuff for him, which was great. It was too bad that we weren't able to play uh, to play the nationals there for him. But there was like I understood fully that he was going to be retiring after that year, and uh, there was going to be a new coach coming in. I didn't have any doubts that they would hire like a good suitable candidate, so I wasn't too concerned with that. Um. 
but yeah, I think was there was there anything else in that question? Uh, I'm just curious, does anything stand out in your mind of what makes Garth so good? Because uh, obviously, an uh, outstanding playing career, outstanding coaching career. I know you only got to work with them in your first year, but uh, any fond memories, uh, anything uh, behind the curtain that you can share that just like stands out to you why he was so successful for so long? Yeah, well, he sees the game at like a crazy high level that not many people see the game. Like, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of really good coaches help me along the way. Uh, he's definitely one of them. Like, I only worked with him for one year, but he's uh, like, if you're if you're willing to put in the work and if you kind of have an ability to see to see the game and want to get better, like he's a great coach for that. He really uh, gave a lot of valuable advice, especially uh, being a former middle too at the high at the highest level for volleyball. And uh, yeah, he's just just very wise. Like he'd been he coached my dad and he coached me, so that was kind of that was kind of something cool that I don't think say that they have an experience like that to play for the same coach that their uh, dad played for and I just I always had a lot of respect for Garth too uh, even before playing for him what my dad told me about him so it was a really special experience to be able to play for him there in his last year with uh, your your interactions with the volleyball community would you say it's pretty tight in Manitoba because uh, I'm just listening to your story you got to be associated with uh uh, the Westman, uh, obviously your dad's very successful. You got to play with Garth. Uh, like any interactions with like the Voth family, like it just sounds like the same names keep coming up over and over again. Like it, does it just feel that like there, there's so many families and communities contributing to the success of volleyball and maybe that's why Manitoba just keeps pumping out players year after year? Yeah, I think like you, if you look back, because I played for, uh, I played for Lloyd Voth, who was my high school coach. And uh, he was also coaching he coached the same ball as my high school when my dad played at Dakota for Phil Hudson, who's Phil Hudson is still uh, he's still coaching the Westman Women's Program now. So I think there's just been there's like a couple real essential builders who started the game and really sparked love, and they kind of like they're still involved now. Like you look at like uh, like Garth, uh, he brought back for the longest time. There was no big beach events, you know. And there used to be big tournaments at Grand Beach, a big. Uh, on Lake Winnipeg there, and it kind of fizzled out a little bit. But this summer, he brought back, uh, he's bringing back like a little beach, like beach summer series thing in Manitoba. Um, so like you see, there's just these people that have a huge passion for volleyball, and uh, it's like a lifelong thing for them. Like they still keep contributing year in and year out, and I think that's super important to uh, to building the game. So you have like these great builders who just haven't taken a step away and worked tirelessly to make sure that there's always an appreciation for the game. And then on top of that, Manitoba is not that big, right? Like we don't have any people. So everybody kind of gets to know each other and when you build a tight knit community like that, have like these legends that keep back to the community. I think it's a, it's a recipe for success. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, so good to hear about the community and behind the scenes there. So uh, I think I have my timeline correct that it would have been after your first year that you got a chance to play team Canada U21. Was that lining up? Yeah, it was after the second year, the COVID year. I went to, I trained in, with the National Excellence Program after my first year, um, which was, that was a special group of guys too. Lots of those guys ended up playing on the junior team with me. And then there were some older guys too. So like lots of, uh, it made it so special because there was no, uh, there was no youth sports season that year. So it gave the opportunity for, that they never had before for like the top 
young talent who's usually playing at university to be able to all go to the full-time center instead. So, like, I was there with, uh, like, Finn McCarthy, Zach Hutchinson, Pierce Johnson, uh, John Finnegan, Sam Cooper, Eric Sixna, Johnson Young, like, all of the top, uh, top guys from Ontario, and then some guys from the West, too, Matthias Elser, um, lots of great guys. So that was a really special experience. Jordan uh, Pereira. Mike Plague. So it was, it was like a really, really focused group of guys, uh, and uh, like lots of these guys are playing and going out. I kind of meet some of them. And, uh, it's uh, a really, really special experience to be able to train at that high level and have that record for twelve. Everybody else was locked down, so I was really grateful for that. Yeah, take me through uh, how you heard that was coming. Like, was that an application you had to do where you were identified? Because, uh, yeah, it was. It was pretty defeating. Like, everybody's club seasons and, and university and college season were being interrupted. And then uh, just with each province having different rules, I guess Quebec was able to open up and you were able to create a center there. But uh, what were your thoughts when you first heard it was going to be possible? And, and how did you get your, your name called? Yeah, so they had – I was only there for the second half. Uh, they had some of the older guys. There's mostly older guys and then a few, like a select few of like the really top-notch younger guys were there in the fall. And then they wanted to expand it to lots of potential junior national team guys to kind of start preparing us for that upcoming season, right? Because I'm sure all the other countries would have had their high training centers going full, full tilt during COVID still, but with restrictions, it was a little bit more difficult here in Canada. So then Dan Lewis... Uh, send me an email saying that uh, I was invited to go train there and I was super excited because at that point it was just kind of like it was pretty bad in Manitoba it was mostly like you could only leave your house to go get groceries or whatever or you could leave your house but um, like gyms were closed everything was closed so it was like only home workouts and going on walks kind of to try and stay fit uh, so just being able to have that opportunity to be able to like get on a volleyball court and you're with guys who are really focused and really good like there's so many Great players there, like uh, JVD was there, and Tina Sanders was there for a bit. Um, and so it was just uh, being able to like, pick those guys' brains was just awesome. Yeah, what works best for you? Like, were you trying to meet them in like a, a formal way, like almost like a team meeting, or would you be like, JVD, can we go grab a coffee and we can talk about like uh, being a middle and all that stuff, or like? How do those conversations uh, come up? Obviously, it's during COVID and you guys are spending a lot of time together because you're probably either at the gym or at home. But uh, I'm just curious how you like to approach it to kind of ask vets for for just any details or anything they're seeing. Yeah, lots of the time, um, I have a lot of, got some advice from JVD there in the mornings, like when we do the individual skill groups, right? So there would be four or five of us middles. So that was a great time for me to be able to just ask him a couple questions like knowing that in a drill if we're off on the side i'd watch you know the other guy doing it i'd ask him like oh like what do you like how do you such like close blocks or like what's the best how do you position your hands when you're going to commit on a block or like different tips with drop an angle stuff like that attacking and uh he was able to give me lots of good insight there and then even just on off days too like this house was near ours so sometimes you just come over hang out coffee stuff like that so that was uh it was really awesome to be able to have access to some of those top guys to learn and uh, try and uh, remind me with your U21 group, obviously because COVID was interrupting anything, did you get a competition opportunity with them or it was mostly training focused? Yeah, so we didn't have a Pan Am Cup 
because stuff was pretty bad in uh, Central America. But FYVB still did have the World Championships, so we competed in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. And take me, take me through that experience. What's, uh, what's it like the first time you get a jersey with your name on it? You got to travel. Uh, now that you mention it, I think your year was pretty tough because obviously with the COVID and obviously anyone pops a positive, they're not eligible to play. So I think you guys actually took some cats over there and had to cut them like on the trip, right? So there was guys who weren't named to the roster who actually made the the travel. So uh, yeah, take me through that. Did you have any fear that you were going to be the odd man out? Like what's the feeling like when you finally make it, you get the jersey, like all that good stuff? Yeah, so it was, yeah, first of all, it was awesome to be able to have that jersey. Uh, still got hanging up in my closet, obviously. Like growing up and always seeing like the countless Team Canada jerseys that my dad had, you know, in the pro jerseys, it was awesome to have one with the family name on it that I had earned. I thought that was a really special, uh, really special moment. And they gave us like the full three jersey kits with the, the black, white, and red. So it was awesome to have all those colorways. And I really think they do a great job. We have some of the nicest jerseys in the world. So it was really special to get that. Um, but yeah, so we went, we did a two week training block in, uh, the draw center in Slovenia first to acclimate. It was like a, basically, I guess we must've had a little bit of extra money, maybe from no competition in the Pan Am Cup or anything. So they were talking about it potentially, and then it got approved by Sport Canada. So we went two weeks early. Uh, it was in, it was in Slovenia. And so it was like, uh, the draw center is like this big hotel high performance training multiplex basically. So they have like uh, I think it's they have two courts right attached to the hotel, and they have like it's their specialty like lots of times they have lots of national teams go there. It's right right in the mountains. It's awesome. Uh, so we trained there for two weeks and they caught a couple guys before going to Slovenia, and then I think we had two extra we carried two extra guys to Slovenia just in case for COVID injuries anything like that, similar to how you'd have like a travel roster and the final final uh, competition roster. So it was definitely um, a little nerve-wracking because there was one extra, like everything had been cut down, but there was one extra outside and one extra middle. Uh, so I knew that we would only be taking the middles to the competition. There were still four of us there in Slovenia. So it was uh, it was still a great experience nonetheless. Like it was tons of fun with the guys. I really enjoyed uh, the whole thing, but I was, you know, a little nervous. You had to be, had to be on your best uh, on the top of your game to like, be able to get a final roster spot. Uh, so they sent two guys. One of them was Eric Sixth, he sprained his ankle. Um, so that was really unfortunate. He sprained his ankle, but like, right in training in Slovenia. It was pretty bad, so he wasn't able to come to uh, to Bulgaria to compete with us. But being named to the final roster was awesome. Uh, and I was just so excited to be able to get to Bulgaria to compete against the other countries on the world stage, which was super experience awesome awesome man yeah let, let's fast forward a little bit so uh, obviously COVID is interrupting your university career and then you make the decision to uh, transfer so was that uh, heck I don't even want to guess I was just gonna ask you if it was based on uh, your brother or just looking for a change but you tell me when did uh, the thought kind of enter your mind that you were gonna look to continue your studies somewhere else and, and what were the factors that went into it yeah so I had that uh I transferred the year after, like I played one full season for them. And that was when they ended up hosting nationals again, actually at home. So that was that was a really awesome experience being able to play in front of the home crowd uh, for the Bisons. 
And yeah, it was just, I, I just did it up the year too. So it wasn't something that I was thinking of immediately after. Like it wasn't like, okay, I want to transfer, but I just felt that it was, uh, I just wanted a little bit of change and I wanted to take a look at some opportunities elsewhere. And you know what? I just finished this first year here at Windsor. Um, he was recruited during COVID. So like it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a different year for him, but he had uh, some really positive things to say. And I've heard really good things about, uh, about James. Um, Steve, I played with uh, Steve Abrams there on the junior team and from uh, Pierce too in the NEP. So I figured, why not? Uh, if you know, great coach, great program, great guys, gonna play with my brother. So after I uh, followed all the steps that are necessary, you know, informed the coach I was leaving, and then I talked to James and he was all for it. And, uh, just kind of flew from there. And I'm yeah, and actually, uh, I sorry, I kind of glanced over it there. Uh, let's let's cover a national championship. So you guys are hosting, uh, and just looking at the draw, you get uh, Canada West rival Trinity. Um, what was kind of the preparation there, knowing that you were going to get that prime time time slot? But uh, based on how like the playoffs shook out and how the other conferences did, and the way they seeded it, that. Uh, you got to play uh, one of the best esports teams of all time. I know Alberta took it down that year, but that Trinity team was pretty stacked. So, what were the thoughts going in, uh, playing at home in front of family and friends, and getting your chance to play on a big stage like that? Yeah, like we had way more people at that first game than I even expected. It's just tests to uh, how strong that volleyball community is. You know, we also battled Ohio's decent ties with Trinity through. Uh, Mostly through Eric Lepke, but uh, through Schreimer and other guys that have come before too. So uh, that also was probably part of it. Like there was definitely there was definitely a good amount of Trinity fans there in the building too. Uh, so, but it, it was like a crazy atmosphere. Like I've never played a game in the in the IGAC there that was that full, and that's like like not a once in a lifetime thing. But it's definitely a really special feeling being able to step out there in front of the uh, in front of your home crowd that. Trinity team was super strong, and uh, it, it really took it to us with uh, their service pressure, but it was just still such a great experience to be able to play in such a loud gym in front of all the fans. And what's it like in that environment for you? Because uh, you guys didn't lay down and die. Like, you came back and you beat uh, U of T, and I know they they might say they had some injury problems, and then you, you play a tough one against Mac to close out the tournament, but uh, even when you guys were out of the, the medal round, was it easy because it was at home and you had so many fans there to kind of fire up and still play for that uh, downside of the bracket? Yeah, I think it was just, uh, we just played really good volleyball as a team too. Like they had, we had a good amount of fans, not nearly as many as the first night, but uh, we were able to kind of, we came together. Uh, it was, like it was a really, we had a good group uh, that year, lots of good older guys and some, really good young guys who rose to the occasion and I think we just came together and played our best volleyball at the end of the year and I was really really satisfied with uh, how that turned out for us. And with the, with the transfer, obviously I'm sure you're accepting because it is a rule, but uh, what is your mindset going in knowing that you have to sit a year? Like obviously your career has already been interrupted by COVID, now you have to sit out a year. Were you excited just to new opportunity to go into the gym and train or did you have to really fire yourself up like that was that part of the decision where you're like man if i'm going to do this like I, i'm i have to come to terms that i i have to miss another year of playing right now yeah i think it definitely helped uh 
following a couple of the guys coming in, right? Obviously, my brother's on the team. Um, uh, that the group of guys is just great. Like the group of guys that we have here at Windsor is really, it's like one of the closest, best, most fun teams I've been on in my life. So it's, uh, that made it super easy, right? You're able to have a great group of guys around you supporting you, have lots of fun, um, spend lots of time with them. And uh, it really helps take kind of lessen the blow of having to sit out a full year. And I was still able to practice and stuff too. And I went on a couple of road trips uh, there for home games. So it was, I didn't feel like I was any less part of the team despite not being able to play. So I really give a lot of credit to the guys and to the coaching staff for making last year kind of flew by. Like it was, uh, And take me into the the practice environment. And the reason I bring it up is uh, you guys clinched uh, second uh, on night one when you beat us at York. And then the second night you played your twos. And we had a heck of a match. And we were still playing our guys because we were still fighting to host a home playoff game. And I was just talking to Abrams after. I was like, man, I thought you're your twos for lack of a better term played out of their mind he's like that's what practices are like all the time and we didn't even have darian because like he's on the court too so like having your brother and marcus lahis and these other guys and include yourself there were these just wild practices where like the i, I can't even maybe use the team the term twos because you guys are probably winning drills in practice right yeah like it's definitely uh we've got a last year and this year again we've got a great deep group through and through um, and guys are always competing right I give a lot of credits to uh, to the guys for they're always pushing starters too. And like the reality is that there's lots of spots that are kind of that will shift around as the year goes on, right? Like we don't have a starting seven; we're just miles ahead of everybody else. So it's it's a really competitive, great practice environment. Uh, guys are pushing each other, right? Got good veteran leadership and good leadership from younger guys too. So I think it's a we had a special group last year, and we have a special group this year. So I'm really, really excited to be able to play alongside these guys. And, and you mentioned there was a couple people who said, uh, Coach Gravel, he, he knows his stuff, like you're stepping into a good environment. What was kind of your first impression and any like confirmation you saw that you're like, yeah, th- this was a, a good decision based on like the coaching I'm receiving or the team culture I'm now a part of? Yeah, he just he understands the game and he understands like his players so well, like better than most coaches I could comfortably say. Like he uh he just knows how to how to interact with players and uh just really like he makes makes you feel like you're super valued and everything that you everything that I kinda of look for in a coach. Um I don't like I don't even really know how to describe it. It's just like it's just great it's just a great style of coaching that works really well and like all the players everybody buys in uh, and it makes it it makes it really easy for a team to play hard and play well when uh, you're doing it for a coach that makes you feel valued and a coach that has everybody the whole team environment buying for the one skill goal and for this year uh, obviously you get a chance to play uh, so I'm wondering how how that maybe changed your preparation or what the first uh, couple weeks of uh, training camp were like, but also uh, like most programs coming off to COVID years, uh, you lose some pretty big pieces where Zach, Anthony and Steve, uh, three big pieces are not part of the team. So just take me through uh, where you look pretty fired up and excited to be part of the team. Cause your number is going to get called, but you're also looking around and being like, man, we got some, some holes to fill here too. Yeah. Um, I was super excited to play. It was uh 
kind of getting used to it again. You know, like there's some things like, especially making middle reads and blocking reads and stuff like that, that not being able to play in actual concrete matches uh, kind of affected it a bit. So, you know, it took a little bit of time to get back to that group. But that uh, Jimmy Belter to our coaching staff this year, and he's been immensely valuable to the middles. He's given us a lot of uh, pointers. Uh, he was a former middle himself. So we've had uh, like a really good support ball by the coaching staff to make his adjustment back to playing full-time. So I'm super satisfied with how that's gone. And I think the team uh, that we've had players, we lost some great players. Um, all three of those guys were top top players in OUA as we saw it last year, especially towards the end. And uh, but I think we we've had some guys that have really stepped into their roles. Like Marcus is uh, setting great. We've had a couple like a committee of plus side guys even that are all uh, that have all stepped up and been super capable. Is there any uh, comparisons you can draw from Canada West to the OUA, or honestly, it's just so different in terms of uh, the travel? Maybe you guys see in Canada West, and you're always playing those back-to-backs. Where uh, maybe in the OUA, actually, because of travel with Windsor, I think you guys always do play the the double weekends. But anyways, uh, I, I'm just curious: did the OUA kind of meet your expectations? Was there anything that caught you off guard, either positive or negative? No, I think uh, even the bus travel versus plane travel is pretty equitable. Um, you get a you go a little further in Canada West, but like we double up here in Windsor all the time just because we're a little further. The teams that are in the GTA will sometimes play like one off matches, but in Windsor we're always playing back to back, so it's very similar to Canada West. So it wasn't uh, wasn't a huge adjustment. Like the, the style of play here is, or not the style of play, the scheduling is uh, very similar as it is out west. So looking at the the first semester here, uh, obviously, like you said, uh, you're, you're missing some guys, but some guys have definitely filled those spots and you guys are fired up. But uh, man, strong first semester. You guys start off against TMU, but you've already played Mac. You've already played Queens, earning splits with them. Um, what What's uh, the vibe around the team right now? Like, uh, obviously, you guys finished second in league play and went to nationals last year. Are, are you guys a big outcome and expectations team? Or are you planning just for the weekend coming up? Like, what, what's kind of the, the pathway the team likes to think of these games when you have to, you know, go on the road and play a McMaster or play a Queens? Yeah, we're just uh, taking things one weekend at a time, for sure. Uh, right now, the main focus, uh, you know, going into the winter break. Uh, you gotta make sure you keep the next, uh, like the next event, next task in uh, your view. So for us, it'll be Waterloo on the first weekend back. So uh, the guys are definitely happy, uh, happy with how we've been performing, but I think, uh, still have a lot more to prove, a lot more to uh, a lot more challenges to come at us this year. And when you're game planning, uh, obviously you would have done this in Canada West, but uh, you're, because of the OUA schedule you're doing it as well, what would you recommend, uh, without giving too many secrets, but what would you recommend to a middle what you can pick up uh, in-game? And what I mean by that is uh, I'm sure Coach Gravel and you mentioned Jimmy and all the other coaches there, my, my guy Nolan, 
I'm sure they have you super prepared, but the other team's setter and the other team's coaches are going to adjust to what you guys are doing. So how are you kind of making a game plan, but also being aware that uh, probably by the second set, maybe some teams are even faster than that, they might start running a, a different base system or try to overload you. So how is the middle are you kind of playing free, but also being aware of maybe tactically what they want to do? Um, something I like to do is always just kind of make sure I'm really taking a good look when I'm at the net, like when I'm putting up a screen for servers, I'm kind of looking out and even just using good communication, like doing, although it might seem kind of repetitive when you're at the club level, uh, cause people are just oftentimes just yelling just to make noise or trying to get in the other team's head. But, uh, I like to kind of make sure I take like a good checklist, like, okay, who are the hitters here in this rotation? Who's hot right now? What's the score? Who does he go in crunch time? Um, just stuff like that. Like, what did he set last? What's the what's the setter here looking for? Just kind of a little checklist like that uh, to kind of help adapt to the ever changing narrative. Game, right? Guys will be like, setters will change things up. The coaches will tell setters to change things up. So I think if you kind of take a moment to center yourself before the rally, take a deep breath, hey, what's going on here? Who do I have? Uh, it kind of helps to approach each point with a bit of a clearer head than getting caught up in like the big grand scheme of the whole game. And how have you found a way to be prepared and find the details there, but not get stuck and kind of, uh, I don't know, locked in an idea? Maybe where, what's an example? Maybe the the path sprays to four, and on video it shows that the setter likes to reverse the flow and maybe wants to set the right side, but this guy is, is setting the short ball to four. We're kind of like on video, like, do you kind of catch yourself taking a step there? Or are you able to stay in a pure read? Like, uh, how much do the details help versus sometimes you just have to make a pure read, right? Yeah, it's super important to prepare before the match. Uh, the other times you to make a read. I mean, obviously, I'm not perfect. It happens. All the time, where I'll make you know maybe a bit of a counterintuitive move or a move that kind of wastes a step, but I'm trying to keep uh, keep focused during the match to get better at that stuff. And uh, yeah, I think sometimes you just have a feeling, right? Like sometimes the video on the point might say one thing, but in your gut, you make a quick meeting, you think, hey, he's probably going to flip his one in the middle, so you go for a commit. So I think it's just you really have to balance not putting all of your trust in just the video, but also not all of your trust in just your game intuition. Like, I think it's a really, it's a really fine blend of both of those. And it's definitely like something that I'm still learning and still getting better at. And uh, something I'm always learning and adapting to as a middle so you can get to probably third top level. And is there any tips you would give a, a younger middle in terms of, I think coaches say this all the time that like blocks are great, but if you can, you know, funnel or steer a hit or make them kind of fall for the trap a little bit. Like, is there ways that uh, you can kind of measure that without sounding like too fluffy being like, Oh, I didn't get any blocks, but they hit at my defender a lot. Like it wasn't happening by accident that you actually feel like you are uh, influencing the, the hitter a little bit. Yeah. Like I think uh, that's definitely, it's tough to avoid that thinking sometimes, right? Like, Oh, like every time that hits a pass, you're like, Oh, why did I get that block? Like start thinking like that, then every time you hit pass, it's going to be seen as a failure, and that's just it's just not a good mind space to be playing the game in. So you kind of have to recognize that as the level gets higher and higher, you're going to get less and less blocks because the guys that you're going up against they're getting more and more skilled, right? Like when you're playing the top left side, you guys that have like really really good block vision, so you could even place your block perfectly, but it's just a great play by the left side. So 
that being said, I think you know, keep learning and working on little like tips and tricks and stuff like that. Like maybe stopping stopping short or purposely leaving seams uh, in certain places if you've got like a great six pack defender, you know, you can slide right in there so you kind of funnel like what you're saying, funnel the like the guy hit the seam, but then your six defenders right there. So I think there's definitely other little tactics besides just moving guys straight to the floor that can see a lot of success so just keep an open mind to that kind of take a look at what available resources you have ask your coaches there's lots out there watch them just watch a lot of volleyball too but like watching uh watching the best middles do what they do like i watch a lot of uh taylor avril video because he's a bit of a shorter middle shorter i should say quotes like myself you know at the international stage so plays in the center a little bit and he tries lots of different things with stopping short and different types of blocking and there's lots to be learned from uh, the best guys out there so just watch and keep learning and, and for you when you are uh finding these creative uh situations to apply it are you giving like a set call or a heads up like when you leave a seam on purpose i imagine you're making the six-back guy aware or coach gravel is probably going to sub you out if you're doing stuff like that and you're not telling the guy behind you like is there a, a hand signal or just maybe a talk in the huddle before you go to that point like is it something you have to feel or can you like make it a set play it depends um like lots of times if you're stopping short uh, like if the outside guy makes a different read than what you make and he goes too far like as the secondary guy, you don't always have to close it mindlessly. Like if you see, yo, he read the angle wrong. I should probably stop right here to cut off his cross for a shot. And you do it. That's just kind of how it is. And like we've made the guys a six back, we make them aware. You know, like he's like, hey, like make sure you're paying attention to where the middle blocker is because might there might be a seam there. Like generally, they'll try and step into the seam regardless. But if you're leaving like a bigger one, I think it's just. Uh, at this point, most of the six-pack guys will kind of know, like, oh, there's a scene when we step in there, because that's, like, very possible that that's where the ball is going to be going instead of just sitting behind the block. Yeah, I think at your level, uh, a lot of coaches have kind of switched the mindset a little bit that uh, hitter versus digger, the hitter's always going to have an advantage. Like, there's just certain balls we can't dig with the velocity and the height guys are hitting. So when in doubt, are you feeling, like, a little bit of urgency just to press and take, like, almost what the primary shot is in that situation? Because, like I said, we can't dig that ball, so... Uh, I know it's super hard reading and closing and doing all that stuff, but when in doubt, are you just trying to get your hands into like their favorite shot? Yeah, it's something that I'm that I've been working on a lot this year is making sure that if you're late, you never want to reach uh, into the seam. It just gives them another option, right? Hit off your hands and out of bounds. So just if you're late, that's okay. You're not going to close every block. Like there's lots, plenty of situations and perfect paths where you're not going to close that block. Setter's good, hitter's good. But just making sure that you're getting up there, pressing, like doing a really good press towards the back of the court and uh, just kind of going up wherever you are because that just it gives it's a whole other thing for them to look at, right? Like instead of just being like a little tiny block, reaching your hands and they see, oh, no block here, just hit cross court. Now, if you stop, even if you're really short because you're late or you made a wrong read and you go up, you're still taking up a huge chunk of space. Uh, it's the, outside, it makes the outside guy. Uh, really have to think before he hits that shot. And are you, uh, I, I think the classic explanation coaches uh, we give is ball setter, ball hitter, but I, I'm wondering if you had to be aware of all the information you're drawing in and where you're looking, when you're looking, is that kind of your sequence or do you try to look at the setter for as long as possible? Like where, where are you getting your information? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of like the basis of it. Um, I've been really working on getting my eyes on the setter earlier uh, in most cases, right? Like, you mean, in most cases, you can kind of get all the information that you need off the first second after the pass, right? You can see, okay, this is behind the top line high ball situation, or okay, this is in the system. And then from there, I'm watching the setter and really trying to make it believe, like, what's, what's his tell, uh, or just watching, like, where his shoulders are squared to and stuff. So, once again, like, this is something, uh, this is definitely, like, a higher level thing that I'm still working on. And it's easy to read and say and do when you're watching, like, film and stuff all the time, but, like, as soon as it gets to real time, it's a whole other beast. So, yeah, just trying to keep my eyes on the center for as long as possible to gather as much information as I can. And, and again, just looking at your stat line here, obviously, uh, yeah, the, the blocking stands out. I do have some couple questions on offense here, but uh, I'm curious, how much pride do you take in your defense in terms of uh, you're credited against TMU to get six digs in a match. Uh, there's another match you have this year to get four, and you're only playing defense for really half a rotation. So how are you... Uh, putting up Steven Abrams like numbers getting six digs in a match when all you do is it's purely commission based. You serve and go get a dig, you get another chance to do it. If you don't, you're off. Yeah, I mean I can't take too much credit. Some of the gyms are on the legal stat free ball passes as okay. digs, but <laughs> so you know, being the uh like the Libero type player there, I can have a lot of boys call it early, take some pressure off, you know, it's ideal that I take that because I'm not hitting a back row ball. So uh, a couple of those, I know TMU sometimes stats, so uh, free ball passes, it's big. So I'll, I'll take what I can get, though. But yeah, I definitely, I've been working on defense. To being a bit of a taller guy, it's something that uh, I've struggled with. But I think slowly but surely I'm making, making some progress. It's really important to not forget about that point of the game, too, right? Because there's going to be some balls that you definitely get off. But like in a tight game, if you're on the service line, you want your team to be able to feel comfortable with you and so don't forget about your uh, don't forget about doing your defense reps in the middle. And uh, is your serve something you take pride in? Again, I think uh, middles you you work your tail off in the front row. You're closing blocks. You're trying to create gaps on offense. But uh, again, uh, nine aces on the season, uh, high of, of four in one game, three in another. Uh, like when you're back at the baseline, are you thinking like I want to take out the setter? I want to get them out of system? Or are you thinking point scoring in some situations? Uh, it kind of depends on the narrative of the game too. Like if uh, if we're if we're serving well as a team and we're making a lot, up, then I can take a little bit more risk. You know, you might shift a bit more towards trying to get some points. But if uh, it's a bit of a tougher serving match, since I'm a float server, you know, you need to get get the ball over so that we can let our block defense go to work. Like I think uh, we've got some really good blockers on our team. So the more that I can just kind of get that ball over, maybe. Them out of a bit of trouble, like every every time I get the setter behind the attack line, uh, it makes it a lot easier for our defense to, to make those reads. Like especially being a middle, like the difference it makes when the setter's behind the attack line versus right on the perfect pass is huge. Like it's way easier, and you have way more time to react to where it's going. So just trying to set us up well is usually my main focus on the serve. And uh, four times this year, you've hit over four fifty, and I think the the middle position has really evolved, heck, even in the last 10, 15 years where it's not just run a 50 and kind of try to draw blockers and, and do stuff like you guys are running into gaps, you're running different variations, like uh, just even out of certain rotations, what guys are able to do when they start behind the setter. Like it's definitely starting to showcase how athletic some of the middles are across U-sports. So uh, I am curious, 
with your system, are you really focused on just being on time? And if you get kills, that's awesome because you're going to get other guys one-on-ones. Uh, you can be honest. Are you thinking, give me the ball, I'm going to score? Like, what's your attitude uh, offensively to start putting up some of these numbers that you are? Um, well, being able to be quick and on time is a great basis for all of that because all the balls, like, they're always running quick. And we've been working on a couple couple different things. Like, you'll see we're not always running uh, – Street 50s and 30s and mixing some 40s and some push runs and stuff like that. We're always experimenting a bit. And uh, like Marcus has been doing a really good job. The series found the middle super well so far. So that makes it incredibly easy to uh, to be able to see the success that we're having in the middle this year. And uh, I think, yeah, like, I mean, I most of that, the middle zone team almost to that to our setters and our passers because we've been setting us up really, really well and allowing us to, to be able to find some really efficient middle opportunities this year. And I think uh, the, the middle position is going to keep evolving. And I think that's thanks to social media and some, some people putting out great content and, uh, Forgive me, I, I don't know the American cat who deserves credit for this, and I think he maybe he even stole it from one of the Italian middles if we trace it back. But uh, I think they're calling it a pop, where basically the middle has a chance to kind of change direction on the last two steps of their approach and maybe jump or sail into different gaps. Is that something that uh, you find appealing, or it's, it's honestly way harder than it looks to, uh, on Instagram that some of these guys are posting in terms of looks like they're going 50 the whole way, and then they'll kind of jump into like a push-quick zone or something like that, right? Yeah, it's definitely... Uh... It depends on the guy. Like it's it's a little bit more difficult uh, for me. I've been trying to work on it a bit. But there's a couple of guys who have done a really good job. Like in my second year, Philip Louder, the guy at Brandon, is really good at that. Like uh, the center would always find him. You know, you run the center just runs a standard fifty, but you just run you run the lane differently and you jump into the fifty gap. Um, so it makes it really hard to block. Middle coming at you, it's it causes a lot of stress on the block because the middle is going to be so focused because you don't even really know where the guy's coming at you from, right? You need to watch the whole way, and then you can often forget about things. So it'll open up a lot of offers, a lot of opportunities for uh, guys to do it. Now, as as maybe some middles are getting really hyped up to try this, or even coaches want to experiment with it, uh, kind of my biggest concern of watching it is if the middle's freestyling a little bit how do you kind of run like the middle pipe combination? Like, is that maybe the one flaw in this? If the, if the middle's up there kind of reading what the blockers are doing and making a decision on their approach, it, it's kind of hard to understand where the pipe should be coming through, right? Yeah, if you're if you're jumping away or jumping into different gaps, I mean, you'll mostly run, maybe run like a shoulder uh, straight pipe. So I think generally if like the 15 40 landing lane won't interfere with where the, uh, kind of where the shoulder is. I mean, we haven't ran it too much, so I can't, if like we're really jumping into another lane, it might cause some issues, but I think it would mostly be you just have to kind of make sure you're not in the landing space of the pipe. Or if uh, if you're running like one of those pop attempts and you're jumping into a different gap, maybe you have to, you make that call ahead of time if you tell the pipe guy to shift your lane over two steps. Is the shoulder pipe isn't going to be on the 51, it's going to be on the 41 this time. So uh, I, don't have, I don't have a ton of insight into that because uh, uh, we, we haven't broken on that too much this year, but I think it would, it's definitely a 
differently. You want to throw the hoop, just play for something in there anytime you want to come off the And uh, I love how you mentioned you're watching video, you're talking to different people, like you're, you're really starting to, or not starting, excuse me, you, you are studying the position. Any tips you can give to a young cat? Because I think sometimes we see highlights and we get appealed to this certain thing, but maybe they're not your body type. Like, for example, not everyone's Jackson Howe, but man, does he have a highlight reel and he runs certain routes and, and the 30 gap, the things he was doing there was insane. But if you don't have his athletic makeup, you're not going to be able to do what he does, right? So how would you recommend to athletes who want to get better and want to get creative, but they, they have to kind of stay within their physical gifts and what they're capable of, right? So how do you find... Uh, a role model or maybe a good idea or maybe go the other way and identify stuff that you think is pretty cool but just isn't what you're going to be able to pull off in a match yeah like there's definitely certain parts of the game from those players that you can still pull like when i'd watch stuff from jackson how uh when i played against him in my first year like i don't have the vertical that he has but um like you can still run the same lanes like i can start my I can start my 30 lane instead of like doing the classic you run out to the middle of the court and run a straight on 30 heat start more of a T and uh, in position four and you just kind of run a slam 30 route because it makes it more difficult for the opposing middle to pick up on where exactly which lane exactly you're running your route in and just even they used to love running uh, like when the middle is trailing they'd love to run that 30 where you just like sprint across the court right so if you look at that even you don't have to it's not that big. So even if you're not quite as athletic as he is, you can still run lots of those routes. Um, you just might not have the 12, 12 foot vertical touch that he had. But I think if you keep an open mind, you can look and see like, okay, well, he runs his route like this. I can run my route like that. Like anybody can run that type of route without having to jump up, uh, jump up that high. So there's definitely little things you can pull from other people's games and then try and integrate it on, on your own game experiment with it in practice, uh, fine-tune it a little bit, and uh, there's definitely lots of things you can learn. Even if you don't have that crazy vertical, you're not like the seven-foot-tall middle blocker, you can figure things out. And what's what's your avenue to find this? Are you a big volumetrics guy? I think U-Sports has switched over to Perfbook. Uh, are you watching international volleyball and just kind of watching games and being like, oh, I like that guy's style. I want to go back and watch more of him. Like, uh, how have you kind of found some of these models or ideas that you, you look closer at? Yeah, so um, on the video things is uh, like all matches or perfect's a great thing. Also, have lots of pro matches on there too. So if you find a guy that you like, uh, you can just search up his club team in there, and you can whatever watch the film on all of his attacks, blocks, stuff like that. And then even a little bit on uh, on Instagram too. Like I know as lots of these pro players, it's a great avenue for them to find some. Uh, to make some money coaching too, right? You're putting out uh, like clinics, workshops, and stuff like that, uh, specifically for the middles. I know Taylor Avril from the U.S. national team does a bunch of blocker training and stuff. You can find him through his Instagram, so that's a great place to start, uh, especially once again, because he's more of like the smaller, crafty middle, not so much like the big six foot nine and six foot ten middle blocker. So that's a great place to start if you're a middle who doesn't necessarily have the uh, extreme height and you need to find kind of different ways to to work around that and different ways to still be a really effective middle blogger. Yeah, that, that, that reminds me, uh, just one more question here. Uh, if you are giving up a little bit of size in the middle, what are some things you think they can make up with? Obviously, like I think closing blocks is at a premium if you're going to give up a little bit of height, but anything else that stands out in just general 
technical, tactical toughness that maybe if you're uh, a medium or even like a lower size middle that you can still battle and compete with these guys? Yeah, well, hitting good attack angles is one for sure, especially if you're up against uh, larger middles. You're going to have to, you can't beat them with height. Uh, so you're going to have to beat them with speed and angles. Um, like you said, they're on closing blocks, good on speed. And I don't think you can forget about like your tactical skills. Like something that JV said was that lots of times as a middle, especially if you're like a middle that doesn't have like a killer spin serve, which lots of middles don't have a killer spin serve, but like you need to be able to have your like your base decline skills good. Like you can't be like you have to be able to set a good high ball. You have to be able to make good digs. You have to be able to see the game well. Kind of have other skills like that. Like don't forget about your basic skills just because you don't use them that much. Because that can make a huge difference uh, at the next level and especially having to projects and stuff like that. They are looking for guys who uh said they're looking for guys who make those good defensive plays and those good high ball sets. I'm so glad you brought that up because when we had JVD on the show, he was talking about uh, the, the couple seasons there. They had Stefan and Tiga and, you know, middles are in the same drills as everybody else. And he's getting like pancake digs and setting high balls. And he's starting to like really enjoy the position where uh, I think some coaches, you know, use and abuse the middles a little bit. And it's just going to be, you know, blocking and hitting. But when you can show some athleticism or just general uh, compete level, I, I think it makes it that much more interesting. So yeah, thanks for the callback on that. I got to go back and listen to that one. But uh, I've definitely taken a, enough of your time. I want to thank you so much for going on the show. But one tradition we've built in is just to tell a, a funny or unique story. So you've already played at such a high level, still have your career ahead of you, but uh, something odd or unique must have happened along the way. And I was hoping you can give us one more story before we let you go. Yeah, for sure. Uh, probably just this one uh, is back from my first year at uh, Manitoba. So this was, I think this was probably our first or second weekend. Uh, and the schedule, we've got Trinity at home. So this was the 1920 Spartans. So this was like one of those teams that was in debate. I think one of the better sports teams of all time. You had upsetting uh, and then Kern on the right side. Uh, you had both Elsers, Hofer, Eric Lepke, Ishenko, Howe. It was a pretty, pretty solid team. So, you know, being a little first year, Middle there. This is some of my first, uh, some of my first experience. So about probably second set, uh, Trinity starts standing float surfing. They just parked themselves right by the line. They standing float surfing. Oh, like, like what state she like is? Because they, you know, they missed quite a few serves. So I was a bit like, is Ben is he upset that they're missing serves or whatever? And I didn't think much of it. And then later in the summer, uh, I'm good friends with Isaiah Wolford. He was there at Trinity with them. And I was just talking about that. I brought it back up again. And uh, Isaiah said that I guess they were, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what Isaiah said. He said that they were uh, they were just trying to win the game just on their block defense. So that was kind of like a uh, little bit of a welcome to the league moment there for us. So. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think they're definitely in the conversation for one of the best teams of all time. But, yeah, to have the confidence to just start, not that they were bopping balls in, but a, a team that usually is aggressive with the attack line hitting standing serves and still expected yeah. to get blocks and digs, that's that's fascinating. Very odd. Yeah, I never thought I'd see that at that level. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, man, this is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I, I know it's exam season, and even though you guys don't have games coming up, you're, you're still super busy with the, the student part coming first. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all you did, and, and best of luck in your second semester coming up. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.